source focusing on early childhood music therapy. Imagine is sponsored by the American Music Therapy Association and can be found on the web at www.imagine.musictherapy.biz. This podcast is entitled The Role of Music in Developing Infant Attachment, an interview with Cynthia Briggs and presented by Matt Logan. Matt is a music therapy practitioner in Iowa City and is currently pursuing a Master's of Arts degree in Music Therapy at the University of Iowa. He works primarily in hospice and palliative care settings, but is also interested in using lullabies with premature and full-term infants. Matthew is the owner of the website www.aperfectlullaby.com and writes about his experiences and insights on musictherapysource.com. Okay, hello listeners. Uh, this is Matt Logan um, from Music Therapy Source, MTBC, and I'm here with Dr. Cynthia Briggs. And we are talking today about infant attachment in music and how you can use um, the, the principles of infant attachment in how you either raise your own babies or how you coach others uh, in your own practice. So, hello, Cynthia. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Good. We're actually here at the Midwestern Region um, Music Therapy Conference, and so there's a lot going on this weekend. So let's let's dive right in. Um, we're talking about infant attachment. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Okay. Um, a, a crash course. We'd have to go back all the way to sort of Freud and um, talking about what he called object relations, which was the idea of how do you build a relationship with those caregivers um, and others in your life. Um, we could move forward through Anna Freud's work, and we could go, you know, Margaret Mahler, et cetera, et cetera, and we get to um, John Bowlby, who was a, Brit- a British psychiatrist who, who actually developed a whole notion or a whole theory about attachment and separation and um, found himself not satisfied with how psychoanalytic theory saw that and kind of became an ethologist and took a much more sort of um, behavioral approach to But certainly, I think contemporary work is a mix of that whole history. If we jump all the way to the present, we'd be talking about the work of Daniel Stern, Alan Shore, mm-hmm. uh, several others, um, but certainly those are two names that are kind of leaders in what we think of as contemporary attachment theory. But Bowlby's work and his, his partner or his his student who became a colleague, um, Mary Ainsworth, their, their theories are still very much alive. Um, so, so is uh, Winnicott and the idea of holding. All those things have moved forward into the present. Um, and the beauty of the present is that we've been able to inform all this um, sort of by neurobiology mm-hmm. um, and behavioral observation in neurobiology so that we really understand this in a very observational and research-based way um, rather than an anecdotal way. Um, which has actually been very exciting for sort of the whole field of mental health because Mm -hmm. as we have studied attachment and understood it better, we've seen its impact in a whole variety of different ways, Um, whether it's the therapeutic relationship, the parent relationship, um, the disorder and its roots in the attachment um, disorder Mm -hmm. and, and so forth. Okay. And so attachment is something that you develop with your infant. How does that all work? Um, well, l- let me sort of start with sort of the more contemporary definition of attachment, which would be the infant's ability to, from birth to attune and to, to others' affect and to um, intentionally sort of connect with significant others. 
But it's really important in that and what we've come to understand in terms of the neurology of it is that that's a two-way street. It's a mutual um, attachment. So it isn't that the parent causes the baby to attach. It's that the parents and the babies attach together. Okay. Um, so it's there's a phrase that sort of two brains make attachment and an attachment makes two brains in the sense that it's it's a there's a you know an enormous piece of it is the mutuality or the word would really be the intersubjectivity of mm. beginning to have a relatedness that has to do with truly understanding not only your own affect but the affect of others. Okay. And so um, some of the work, uh, Bowlby is one of the names that comes up all the time when I'm looking into this. And then I also see different forms or different types of attachment. Uh, are those theories um, still, uh, are they still being used? Are those still the terms that are being used? Or is there uh, something yeah, different if you, if you look at, at, at things written very, very, you know, in this year, um, you would still see people referring kind of broadly to the idea of secure attachment and then broadly insecure attachment. Mm -hmm. So secure attachment is sort of what we, we all hope for, that in that early attachment, the child develops a sense of trust, a sense of safety, a sense of reliability, a sense of predictability, that I know that these caregivers will care for me, that when they leave they'll return, uh, which is sort mm -hmm. of that separation piece. Um, and that so you get a, a secure child who moves into separation with their own sense of who they are, their boundaries, and that those people are important and have their best interest at heart. So mm -hmm. that we still think of that as being secure attachment. Um, insecure gets broken down um, in different ways, but the other kind you mostly hear about, you'll see it sort of diagnostically, and actually I think DSM-5, you may not want this information, DSM-5 is actually playing with how this will look. Um, it is one type is called disorganized attachment, um, and disorganized is pro probably the most severe poorly attached diagnosis in the sense okay. that the individual is really very unable to attach effectively. And this is probably for the child who's lived in tremendous chaos, has had a caregiver who couldn't meet their needs for whatever reason, mm -hmm. um, perhaps had multiple caregivers, uh, perhaps had multiple, say, foster placements. So there's just this disorganized attachment in which mm -hmm. the individual doesn't develop these basic skills that have to do with building relationships with others. Mm -hmm. Another type would be avoidant, where you have a child who's sort of any port in a storm, they'll take comfort from kind of anybody around. There isn't that focus piece of this is somebody I have a strong bond to, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or um, a caregiver, a nanny or a sibling, there's still that sense of this is a special relationship I have. And what you see in those kinds of children, uh, the avoidant, is that that isn't there. It's kind of, will you meet my needs? Will you meet my needs? Will you meet my needs? That kind uh -huh. of thing. Does that come from their needs not being met? at the very beginning or is it what kind of parent behaviors or what kind of relationship leads to avoidant yeah you know i i think i would say that it, it, there isn't any sense for them of a predictability that oh, okay. this person that i'm attached to is going to meet those needs so when they leave it's like well let's try the next person the next person because i don't have a predictable pattern of when you leave you come back when i'm wet you change me when mm -hmm. i'm hungry you feed me so I, I kind of look for where i'll get that you know, sort of probably mm -hmm. a basic instinct of this is a need I have. If that person is predictable, let me look and see who else will meet that need. I see. Okay. Are there any other types? Yeah. The other type that you see in the literature is ambivalent. 
and you'll see this child sort of is exactly as it says. Distress when the caregiver leaves, but then, um, and they may even kind of be pleased to see the caregiver when they get back, but at the same time, they may be very angry with that person and you can't comfort them. Mm. So, um, again, sort of you, you get that feeling from kind of inconsistent parenting or parenting. One of the, some of the literature talks about that comes from parenting where the parent is preoccupied with their own issues, dynamics, problems, whatever it might be. So I'm sorry that you're leaving and I'm glad you're back, but on the other hand, I'm really angry at you. It isn't something where we've developed a pattern of when you come back, I know you'll return and we'll reconnect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do these different um, attachment types affect people as they age, as they get older into their adolescence and even adulthood? Right. Probably the exciting piece about the more contemporary research is that we really are seeing that this early, early attachment that goes on is literally building sort of neurological skills and pathways that are very important building blocks for later behavior. In the disorganized type, there's a very high correlation, or those children are at very high risk for late, later significant psychopathology. Mm. So we, we begin to see patterns of if you don't develop that ability to really connect with someone um, and have that sense of intersubjectivity, I understand you, you understand me, we share something at a very um, basic affective level. Mm-hmm. You understand my nonverbals, I kind of get your nonverbals, the whole piece. If it's not there, then the child is, is I always when I teach this talk about they're sort of missing some major tools in their toolbox. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going sure. around with no hammer, you know, with no nails. Yeah. Um, so that um, they they have by not having had that experience early, they have deficits later when it comes to building relationships that are important for learning, that are important for um, just friendships, you know, all down the line, and then being able to be an employee. You know, the, the, those basic things you need are, are not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I always get asked the question when I talk about this of, does it, can, you, can, can you make up for lost time? And there are very mixed feelings about that. There are individuals who, yes, intensive psychotherapy or kinds of approaches could, and there are people who say no. There's sort of a critical... Um, period there that it becomes much more difficult as the child ages to get some of those skills. I'm a true optimist, so I want to say yes, that I think music therapy and lots of other kinds of therapy can be a part of replacing some of those missing tools. Mm -hmm. But um, like critical periods, when you get them at the right time, the the development unfolds more smoothly, more effectively. Okay. Um, Okay, so then going back to, to secure attachment, is there a spectrum or can you be more securely attached than, or have a better secure attachment than um, somebody else who also has secure attachment? Does that lead to different outcomes or is it just, it is what it is? It's a great question. I'm not sure I have a, a packaged answer in the sense that it's probably a spectrum. You know, we, we may all have a sense that, that people in our lives are you know more attached than not that we think mm-hmm. they're secure but we all see that in each relationship it has a little bit different quality mm-hmm. um, because it's important that you always remember that this is a duet um, I, one of the one time when I was talking about this I called this sort of the first duet mm-hmm. um, that um, it's also about the parent so the parents 
quality of secure attachment is a variable in here too. The highly anxious mother who is really worried that something's going to happen when she's away from her child is communicating something very different than the mom who's pretty, you know, securely attached and stable and kind of knows, okay, he's, he's fine, he's in very good care, I have to go to work, I'll be back, we'll pick up where we left off. Mm-hmm. So the, the parenting quality is also a function of that parent as well as that child. Sure, sure. Plus we all have temperament. You know, we, we all have um, our own sort of personality variables that you know, we, we know are genetic probably. So we bring that temperament to that duet as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that's the first time I I saw you is when you gave the, a presentation about the first duet. And that's how I came to contact you and, and talk to you afterward. Okay, so we're talking about music for this particular podcast. So I'd like to know the role that music can play in developing secure attachment. Um, one of the, the things I enjoy most about reading about more contemporary uh, writers about attachment, especially the work of Daniel Stern, is that that the way he writes, I, I suspect he's a musician of some sort, but he uses very musical terms in terms of understanding what he's seeing. And it takes us all the way back to William Sears when he talked about in the, the very first sort of music therapy textbook book, um, Music is the organizer and the energizer. You know, uh, rhythm, excuse me, I should back up. When Sears talked about rhythm is the organizer and the energizer, that that there's a whole rhythm to attachment. Mm. You know, in the sense that I greet you with a rhythm, you greet me. We establish as we build our relationship sort of a rhythm, uh, whether it's how we come in the door or how we go take our nap or how we greet you when you get up for the baby. But sure. that, that, that attachment figure... It's probably easiest to use the word parent, but it could be any attachment figure. You know, sort of establishes a rhythm. And they're probably, when they do a parent-child research, they literally can break it down and look at kind of rhythms um, in, in, in terms of how that child and that parent have established their interaction. Mm-hmm. We, we use words like, I'm in sync with someone. There really is a rhythm to that. Um, you know, we want to jump to the present and talk about some of the work that NMT music therapists are doing. They talk about rhythm as that organizer and that driver. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. That at our core, we are so rhythmic, we have a tendency to sort of even put our relationships into a rhythm. Huh. But there's also sort of phrases um, in the sense that, that um Stern talks about vitality affects and looking at affect and how it happens in phrases and bursts and that when we engage a child in a very affective way like, hello, you're up from your nap, we've not only put a lot of inflection in there and rhythm, we've put a phrase to it, it has rhythm, we could set it to music very easily and the child responds to that in the same way, whether it's non-verbally by sticking their arms up or verbally by saying something or gurgling or catching your eye. Mm -hmm. So that we set it all sort of to a rhythm and to a a phrasing sort of context that makes it very musical. Mm -hmm. Um, When when I think about music therapy, working with mothers and infants, it's it's so easy to kind of take those patterns that um, mothers establish with their children and, you know, set them to music, make them a song, put them on the drum, because Mm -hmm. we are so inherently rhythmic about it. Right. Okay. So just kind of naturally in our interactions or interactions between a caregiver and an infant, there's a rhythm going on. Uh, is, 
is there anything specific about the use of lullabies or actually singing um, to an infant? I know there are, there are benefits as far as developing language skills go, um, benefits as far as uh, mood regulation or kind of uh, behavior states. Mm-hmm. Um, but what else? What else can you tell me about that? Well, you know, if we just neurologically move, work our way up the brain, you know, we can start with just kind of the brainstem and arousal, and we can go to sort of that motor response that comes from the cerebellum. We can go to that affective response that comes from the limbic system. We can go all the way uh-huh. up to that sensory motor strip that's organizing all our movements and planning. But all of that is a part of our interaction. So whether music's coming in at just an arousal level, and raising or lowering arousal, I think that's a big part of lullaby. Mm. We're lowering arousal. We're taking respiration and heart rate and some of those autonomic systems down by having that lullaby that is that we use words like comforting, mm-hmm. that is um, that is even, that you know sort of physiologically respond to what we've put into the the musical elements. But we also, especially um, if you kind of have the same song you do, or songs you do with children. Maybe you have a bedtime song. Maybe you have a dinner mm-hmm. song or a wake-up song. My children have a song for their address. That's how they learn <laughs> their address. Um, then you also get that, that limbic system piece going in terms of mm-hmm. um, the, the affect and, and then affective memory and then associations, all of that. So maybe the song was literally, I mean, a, a, it was... Maybe the song was first there for comfort and for lowering arousal. But then you also build that relationship by the the mood that you create and the the emotional connection that you create. And then you connect memories to that. Mm -hmm. And so now... Um, as my children did, they had a little CD that they wanted to hear when they were tiny each night. And if you played a different song, it didn't work. You know, we do our goodbyes and goodnights, you know, mm-hmm. and our lullabies and stuff, but then the CD went on, and there was no switching the CD. So that you also build a ritual. Sure. That, those mu- that music builds a ritual in that partnership and that relationship uh-huh. as well. Okay, so scenario. Um, so I'm a new mom, and I, I'm not very musical. What are some ways I can use music? Uh, with with my event. Mm-hmm. I think even for the person who says he's a music therapist here all the time, I'm not musical or I don't sing. You know, you can you can um, put them at ease by saying there there's wonderful material out there. You know, you you can um, first and foremost go find a CD. You can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 music can help you build this relationship. But then I think the other thing you help them do is that you know your baby is not an arts critic who does not care how you sound mm-hmm. you know and that hearing your voice is so valuable that hearing your voice is so powerful in the connection that you, if you can begin to try to sing along with a CD and make up silly songs so it doesn't matter so much how you sound your baby will, will be so responsive to the fact that it's your voice and he does not care if you're on pitch Mm-hmm. He really doesn't. And I think that if you can help parents kind of get that, that the fun is engaging with the music and connecting with the music and the elements of the music are bringing you together and nobody here cares about you know pitch and rhythm and that sort of thing, it can mm-hmm. put them at ease so that they begin to feel more comfortable singing. Sure, sure. Are, the, are there any other main points you'd like to make or that we should take home? One of the things I love to kind of point out about attachment is that 
attachment is one of the basic building blocks for empathy. And mm -hmm. empathy is extremely important in terms of people being able to move into adult relationships because they, you have to be able to step into someone else's shoes and to understand how they're feeling and what their experience is to really connect to someone. We don't right. expect small children to be highly empathic. They're fairly self-focused for obvious reasons. Sure. Um, and we expect to see an unfolding of empathy across development. But when we see individuals who aren't develop, developing empathy, we know that they are at tremendous risk for other kinds of um, not only disorders, but also sort of dysfunctions. Uh -huh. um, so it isn't terribly connected to music, but it is in the sense that to, th to think about this also as a building block that's way down the road, that when a child is well-connected and has a sense of being, you know, intersubjectively connected with another person, that's the building block for thinking that matters down the road and thinking that I want to have an empathic relationship with the people around me. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the building of a good citizen as well. What an interesting topic. And we, I, in this interview, we've only scratched the surface. I know there's just a ton of research going on about this, especially um, neurologically what's happening as this process unfolds. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Briggs, for sitting down with me and going through this and uh, thank our listeners as well. Imagine Podcast, produced in 2012.